a lot of people with hamstring tendon problems do have a long problem with it because sitting is a problem and it's a hard thing to get over. It's probably akin to sleeping on your side when you've got a gluteal tendinopathy. It's one of those symptoms that even when your pain is better during other functions like walking and running, it might still be a problem for them. That tends to really get into their head, cause a lot of frustration and it can hang around for a long time. Our understanding of tendinopathy continues to evolve, so today we had Peter Maliaris on who did a PhD in tendinopathy. He's also been published on 60 peer-reviewed papers. Today we covered assessment, management, and the latest research on treatment modalities and how it's not as simple and structured as we like it to be, but in that uncertainty, we can still keep it quite simple. We finished off going a little bit deeper on proximal hamstring tendinopathy. Now, if you enjoyed this episode, it would mean the world to us if you could leave us a review. My name is Michael Risk, and this is Physio Explained. Hello, Peter. Thank you for joining us. Thank you very much, Michael. We're talking proximal hamstring tendinopathy today, and have you seen anything in the evidence or anything that sparked your curiosity? Well, not really. There is a guy called Anthony Nasser who's out of Sydney, and he has done a PhD in this area recently, and he's interested in progressing the field. But there hasn't been a lot, unfortunately, focus on how we should treat these conditions and what we should do. So we do treat them with a similar type of approach to what we treat most tendinopathies, and that is trying to educate people about how to be sensible about their problem, i.e. sensible loading, load management, and also possibly exercise active interventions is still what we tend to do. I'm interested in that because there's been a bit of a shifting over time from my view. I haven't consulted for a little while, but I've seen it. It used to be a, a isometrics were in favor and then it was eccentrics. And then I think I saw a paper going around socials the other day that maybe strengthening is not working how we thought or working as well as we thought. Did you have any view on that? Yeah, that's a really layered and complex question. Let's try and untangle it a bit. First of all, if you're looking at the different exercise approaches, there doesn't seem to be much difference between them based on what we know anecdotally, but also in the evidence. Isometrics did have sort of a heyday of this is the new kid on the block and it's a thing that everyone should be doing probably about 10 years ago. But that was based on a really evidence that was inappropriately used, I guess you could say, because we had evidence that it might help tendon pain in the short term, i.e. over half an hour, not what we want, which is helping people get over their tendon pain completely. There's no evidence that suggests that isometrics is better for either of those, actually, either short term or in the longer term. Basically, loading, regardless of how you do it, probably is the way to go. So that's the first part. The second part is Do we think exercise in general, regardless of how you do it, should have a benefit or a good effect? And is it working the way we thought it was? It's fair to say that our confidence in exercise probably peaked already and has come down. I think we know that if you look at all the tendinopathies, not only hamstring, especially in the upper limb, there's been quite a few studies where it's underwhelming, to be honest, the efficacy of exercise and Maybe that's a function of some of the people they're having in the trials or other things. You can always make arguments for subgroups or how you do the exercise, how you do the interventions. But I think we have to listen to the evidence, and that is that the effects are probably small. 
overall, if you do active interventions like this, we still don't know whether it's just they're getting more confident and you're giving them maybe a bit of a boost with just the education you're getting, which is something we're getting out of a lot of the research we're doing, that education is critical. How important the exercise is over and above that is not certain as yet, but certainly an active approach is still recommended. But I think probably third aspect to that is that Oh, I've lost my train of thought. I can't remember the last point. Oh, oh, let's come back to it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I had heaps of ideas coming off that and something that triggered in my mind too. Does this make sense though, Peter? Given what we're learning about pain, a tendinopathy might be closer to the bucket of persistent pain or pain that's been around for a while. And if we're using the BPS lens or model, would it make sense that one modality or one thing like exercise or one thing like education or one thing like biomechanics Neither of those is going to come out as highly superior to making this thing better, but it has to be all of that. Does that kind of make sense to you, the way I frame that? Possibly. Yeah, I think there might be small effects that accumulate for different interventions and all we're seeing is small effects, possibly. Possibly that is the case. Possibly for some people, you don't need to do much at all. Mm. It's just natural history. And there's probably a large group that I think we don't do much at all. We just guide them and they get better. Or we just don't do anything. We try not to harm them and they probably get better over time. So I think there's natural history that is a big factor, but there's also possibly combining different treatments, different effects. But I just don't think we know yet how we can individualize treatment based on something like the BPS that you mentioned there. Yeah. I did remember the third point, if you want me to go. Go for it, yeah. Yeah, so the third point is there is sort of also an appreciation these days that the old biomedical view that if you just load someone with exercise, it's going to improve their strength, which is going to improve their pain. That theory is faulty. It's, it doesn't seem to hold the water. So there is now recognition that loading is not a vehicle for just getting people stronger and the tissue stronger and adapting them. It certainly does that really well. And I think it's still important to focus on that with tendon patients, but that's a different outcome to pain. The pain outcome doesn't seem to be mediated by strength gains. That's what we're sort of learning as well. And we don't know yet what it is mediated by? We have some idea that some variables like improving self-efficacy, reducing fear might be important, psychological variables, and that's probably not from tendinopathy literature, although there is some evidence starting to come out in the shoulder, but more so from low back pain. And so that would speak to the education piece helping than just doing exercises. 100%. Yeah, that's education is really important to address beliefs and to really try and maximize some of those other factors that might improve outcomes. This podcast is sponsored by Clinico. Clinico is a practice management software that helps you save time. It's used by 65,000 practitioners worldwide. With Clinico, you'll get everything you need to run a successful physio practice, like online booking tools, treatment notes, digital forms, customizable body charts, and much more. Physio Network members get 90 days for free now. Signing up takes one minute. Just visit clinico.com forward slash physio dash network. You know, I was thinking when I was in new grad and it was helpful to have a structure. Like if it's a tendinopathy, I'm going to do isometrics and then they're going to feel a bit better and then I'll go to eccentrics and there was some safety and comfort in that. But what we're learning is that 
in this ecosystem. It's super complex and we have to consider all of these factors. And that might be harder, I guess, if you're a young physio, but closer to the truth. I would say keep it simple and do the simple things well, like educate, reassure, focus on their loading and their load management. Do those things really, really well. Don't get too bogged down and upset about the exact exercise and what it needs to be. Focus on other risk factors like other things that you think are really important like the person's health or weight. And that's really all we can do. That's all we really know. So just keep it simple but do those things pretty well, I think, is the way to go. I like it. And if we zoomed in on a proximal hamstring tendon, what are you looking for as far as assessment findings or maybe even some history that would tip you off to that? Because it can be a few other things. Yeah, so pretty much the things to look for are obviously are they someone who's got a lot of pain like masses of pain are they someone who doesn't have much pain and you can be a bit faster with so you categorize them in that way sort of in your head and then you can also think are they someone that doesn't have a lot of pain but they're still really fearful or they do have pain and they're fearful which is i guess a bit more rational a bit more irrational to have no pain but still be fearful but They're the types of things that you think about, just like with every tendon. But then you're also thinking about capacity and strength. So what's their lower limb strength like, their hamstring strength? What's their loading like, their loading activities? What are all their risk factors like? Have they got any major risk factors, any sort of history of injuries that might have predisposed to this or surgeries? Are they overweight, the BMI, metabolic factors? And they're the sort of assessment things. And then that leads into that approach of advice about load and advice about exercise as well. I don't know why, Peter. As a clinician, I found this one of the hardest conditions to manage. I felt like they really hung around for a long time. And I wondered if it was something in my approach or there's evidence that they're harder because you're sitting on it or you're walking uphill biomechanically. It's something that is harder to offload, I found. As far as managing it, could you point to anything specific for managing a proximal hamstring tendinopathy? It sort of depends on the outcome as well. So a lot of people with hamstring tendon problems do have a long problem with it because sitting is a problem and it's a hard thing to get over. It's probably akin to sleeping on your side when you've got a gluteal tendinopathy. It's one of those symptoms that even when your pain is better during other functions like walking and running, it might still be a problem for them. That tends to really get into their head, cause a lot of frustration and it can hang around for a long time. So I think it's yeah reassurance around that and strategies to try and reduce the pain, modify sitting, those types of things can be helpful. How do you load that area uniquely or, or how would you suggest a kind of loading pathway? Because I found it a little bit harder than loading an Achilles. Yeah, I tend to use an approach where... I try and focus on the affected muscle tendon unit as much as possible initially. So that could be with things like leg curl, where you're really focusing on the hamstring, and then becoming a bit more global and complex movements like squatting, step up, split squats, and going into flexion of the hip, which tends to be a bit painful, more so as they become less load intolerant. So I guess around that is looking at what is their function, what do they need to get back to, And, you know, if they're a runner, then you might be looking at progressing that with a bit more intensity. If it's just a walking patient, you might not go as intense with some of those people. So, you know, getting them back to whatever function they need to be able to do. Say doing a hamstring curl 
is that potentially more targeting the distal hamstring unit and then something like a deadlift is really flexing at the hip and targeting the proximal unit. Are there any signals for you? Well, firstly, is that thinking right? And are there any signals for you that you'd transition from one to the other? I guess I don't look at it in that way so much. Mm. I look at it more so as have they got the functional ability to be strong through hip extension, which they need? Have they got the functional ability to be strong through knee flexion, which they also need? Yeah. And then can you integrate that to some of the activities they need to do? Could be you've got a runner who needs to run quickly for some of the high-intensity systems. Well, it might be you've got a footballer who needs to change direction and sprint. Then can you convert those abilities to then that type of power? I think the research where you're looking at distal EMG activity of certain parts of the hamstring, I don't let that lead my clinical reasoning too much because of some of the limitations in applying that to different populations, I guess. It's probably a little isolated and reductionist thinking when we're trying to consider the whole human. Something's triggering off for me about the inflammation phenomena. Is this still something that can inflammation be a driver or is it more of a wearing and tearing of the tendon? And again, if that thinking is right, is there any points in time where you consider other health professionals here? Yeah. So it's definitely important to consider inflammation. It's funny you should ask that question because I wrote a blog which became quite popular. It was the nine inalienable truths of tendinopathy or something like that years ago. And I was reading it the other day and I thought I've got to update it because I talk about inflammation. I sort of play it down a bit. Whereas I think these days we know that inflammation is really, really important. And denying it is akin to being a flat earther, basically. It's really so out there. Anti-inflammatory treatment is a tricky one because they don't generally have an effect unless it's an acute type presentation. Mm, Okay. So inflammation does play a role. We want to be careful with NSAIDs. And if we are using them maybe just in the acute phase, is that how you mean? Pretty much, yeah, when they've got an acute flare-up of tendon pain. Yeah. But the other thing to be really important about that's important is to look out for inflammatory arthropathies, that particularly with Achilles and plantar, they manifest. And the main ones are gout and ankylosing spondylitis, which you commonly see related to those tendons. Yeah. Peter, that was a fairly well-rounded view of tendinopathy and then zooming in to proximal. Super appreciated what you said for the grad physio who might have thought like they had a structure. I think you've still given a structure and shown us how we can keep it simple. So thank you so much for that and thank you for your time. No worries at all. Thanks, Michael.